Hi, and welcome to episode 27 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Joanna Logue. Joanna's an award-winning painter whose work captures her experience of the countryside and bushland which surrounds her. Through her sensual application of paint, she transports the viewer into the landscape. Her paintings are beautifully evocative and she's been described as reflecting a nostalgic or dreamlike state. We talked about lots of things, about what it was like growing up with a twin, finding her language in her art, residencies she's been on, and she generously gives lots of information about her process. You'll also hear the modern day fairy tale of how she met her husband, Martin. But I think what's most interesting about what Joanna has to say is how she managed to change her approach to painting from one of seeking perfectionism in the early years to her free and visceral approach today where there are no rules. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Joanna about her early years. Well, I was born in the Hunter Valley uh, and I came into the world with another person, which is really quite incredible, miraculous. So you're a twin? Yes, and my dad uh, was running the local newspaper and and my mum was a school teacher in the town of Musselbrook and that's where we grew up till the age of 10. And then my dad got a, a job in the big smoke and thankfully and so we actually had an education in Sydney oh um, so you moved to Sydney so that when you were well, 10 perfect. so what, what was your life like before you were 10 like what sort of um, upbringing was it was it a- very close to nature mm. and very close to um, yeah the, the natural world grandparents had the farm and we spent a lot of time out there you know in the chicken coop and my grandmother had a really amazing veggie garden and she used to take us into it and just we used to just pick tomatoes and you know pick carrots out of the ground and just Uh eat just you know a very earthy very kind of um oh how can I say sensual yeah Yeah, sensual and uh and that sort of to my mind has informed both Simone and I in our lives now and Simone's your twin sister yes and later on we we bought property together in the country and um well Simone's a very well-known cook and uh, caterer and singer yeah Yeah. she's quite entrepreneurial so what was it like being a twin when you were a little kid well I didn't know any different but I think it was curious for our parents because in a way uh, we didn't quite need them we had each other and we spent all our time together mainly making things and building things and um and being creative and so it wasn't like we were depending on our parents to offer up activities for Mm. us we just were very kind of um independent of them but not independent of each other which so you didn't like being alone well we we weren't ever given the opportunity to be do you know and we were it wasn't until uh, adolescence that we experienced being separate what happened well I went um, back to school in year 11 and Simone went to full-time ballet school and so that was very hard for me because in a way 
I felt like I'd been cut in half. My personality, it was really curious. Like I'd never really had to um, consciously make friends mm. because I'd always had her by my side. And because we were different, uh, we were quite powerful in our togetherness. You know, we always had a nice network of people around us and we never had to really work hard at building that. Yeah. But when I went back in year 11, I really, for the first time, um, realised my aloneness or my separateness in the world, which is something I think uh, when, when you're born, you start to work that out for yourself. It's a natural... Thing that happens is you understand your separateness, but I don't think I ever really learnt that. Mm. How did did she have the same experience? No, and I think that's because she went off to ballet school and she was surrounded by like-minded people, and then they went. She, they joined. She joined a ballet company and she went touring, and so it was a very strong, connected. Um, how can I say, female world mm. and also a world of great sort of self-expression on mm. the stage and performing and it was outward, whereas my world was becoming inward because uh. I was, I was start, you know, I was painting at this point. Um, so you mean in year 11 you had started painting? Yeah, I was painting from the age of 10. Um, it, How did that start? How did you start painting? It was painting? just what... What I did and my sister did it as well. And we laugh now because at one point, I think when we were about 14, my sister <laughs> said to me, OK, so do you want to be the ballet dancer or the painter? <laughs> I said, I'll be the painter. She said, OK, I'll be the ballet dancer. It was kind of joking, but not. And I think yeah. that was at the point where we started defining ourselves as individuals, mm. where we both decided, OK, I'm going to go and do this. In year 11 and 12, I did three-unit art. And oh, okay. Thank God I did because I'm not very academic. Um, mm. So, um, And did you like doing art at school? Not particularly, no. Mm. I found it to be really difficult because I'm perfectionistic and um, I suppose the flaw, I would say, in the curriculum at, in, in high school as far as the art, curriculum is that we weren't taught that it was okay to make a mess do you know and if yeah. you come from a world where your parents are fairly perfectionistic mm. and you weren't allowed to go out of the lines in your coloring in book <laughs> <laughs> then that just makes gets it worse, worse. <laughs> yeah. and i often fantasize about you know what would it have been like if my um dad was an abstract painter and my mum was a poet do you know? Um, whether your style, whether your nature would be different. Yes, absolutely. But don't you think, I think, yeah, I think that um, perfectionism and not being allowed to go out of the lines has really got in my way. And I think that the, that the school that I went to um, really nurtured that in me, that perfectionism. And it wasn't until I went to art school that I realised... Oh, oh my God, there's, there's a whole other way of approaching this. And that was quite liberating. Um, I started looking at other artists' processes, you know, and also mm. 
I had some pretty amazing teachers in art school yeah. and uh, you know I had the beautiful Guy Warren oh, and right, uh, yeah. so he never really talked to me about tone or colour or composition. The best thing Guy Warren ever said to me was, you know, not every painting has to be a masterpiece. So there you go, and I really took that on board. Well, it takes the pressure off. Absolutely. And then Idris Murphy, he taught me drawing. Well, how good was that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you had to hold the pencil in your left hand rather than your right, and you had to close your eyes. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, that'll take perfectionism out of you, won't it? (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, that was really liberating. And um, I didn't start learning about painting for me. uh, until I left art school and I just put my head down and my bottom up and I I started um, painting every day and really pushing through to a language. And, you know, I'm still doing that. Mm. Um, and what, did, what was your... Uh, what happened after art school? Like, how did you get into the galleries? Yeah, that's that's... That's funny because I, why do we feel that we need to be with a gallery as soon as we leave art school? Why, why don't we just put a backpack on our backs and go travelling and, mm. you know, and, and you know, I, I wish now looking back that I'd just gone to Europe and gone to all the art galleries and some people do that but maybe my anxiety didn't allow for that at the time and also the work ethic, you know, that I had. I felt, okay, now I've... I've gone to art school and now I've got to start making a living out of this thing. Mm. And uh, looking back, I wish I'd done it in a different way. Um, I think I would have been... Um, I think I would have found um, my a, a more honest approach sooner. I, I believe when I left art school, I was going through the motions of being a painter rather than actually truly being honest in my process. Mm. I suppose you've got a, but there is a period of exploration and trying to find your way, though it must be for most artists, don't you think? Yes, but I feel I could have explored more rather than settling into something that wasn't truly me. It was like um, maybe a formulaic approach rather than um, a really honest kind of exploration of looking and seeing and um what sort of work were you doing then at the well stages? i was well you know i was going out with my camera and photographing the landscape and then coming back to my city studio and um using the photograph as a departure point nothing wrong with that but uh, there was something slightly dishonest about that um for me so i was widowed quite young and um, then Simone and I bought this property and really my idea in going there was it wasn't to grieve but it was more this idea of um, exploring what it is to be alone and because I'd never known how how it would be to be alone Mm. and always had a, a, a bit of fear around that and so that was uh, what I did at Essington Park. So Essington Park is is a few hours west of Sydney isn't it? It's yes, in the over the Blue Mountains and 
it's in a place called Oberon, but it's about 10 kilometres out of town. And it's a historic sandstone homestead. It had needed lots of love and mm-hmm. it many families had lived there and there hadn't been a level of sensitivity brought to the place, just put it that way. (laughs) Uh, So Simone and I bought it for a song and then it was our project to renovate it, which actually meant um, pulling out all the things that people had done, like the jacuzzis out of the bathrooms and the blue velvet wallpaper and and just taking it back to its bare bones, back to the beautiful stone walls and the beautiful cowrie boards. So would you spend daily time in the landscape? Oh, yes. So Yes, and that was where my work shifted. That idea of going out into the landscape and then coming back to the studio in my early days of painting, that when I talk about that as being dishonest, that's what I mean. Um, Now I was living in the landscape, walking to the landscape every day, walking through it, living it, breathing it. And after a while, the camera just disappeared. I mean, the photographic image, Mm. I didn't need that as a device in to the painting and I started to make paintings on plein air. Apart from Essington Park you've, you've also been in other environments as well which include a couple of residencies one at Hill End another yeah. in Bruny Island in Tasmania and I think you went twice to both of those didn't you? Yes I did because I mean you fall in love with these places and, yeah. and you start paintings and you feel you've got to go back and revisit Um, So, yes, it was interesting moving away from a landscape that was dear to me to a totally different environment. And what comes up for you in that is um, it really shifts you to a new language. Mm. Uh, The hill end uh, landscape is very dry and scratchy and you've got that red earth and, you know, that whole history of the gold mining and uh, that pioneering spirit that you can really feel there and also continuing a landscape painting tradition Mm. those painters you know Donald Friend and Arthur Boyd and Brett Whiteley and Drysdale yeah not sure did Arthur Boyd go there but Margaret Ollie they all went there and photographers as well and it became like a hub and mm. you can really feel that energy. Yeah. And, well, those and cottages you, look amazing. They're amazing. Um, and did you feel, do you, do you with residencies, do you uh, have to produce a certain amount of work by the end of it? I mean, what, what, what's the requirement? No, but inevitably you do because you have no distraction of going out for dinner with people or putting a load of washing on you know it's just you and your paints and this new environment Mm. and it just draws you in and you forget about all things domestic Mm. um when when i went to bruni island i went firstly with cammy lyons she's a sculptor with tim olson gallery and we just worked for three weeks solid and it's a it's a very intimate connected situation through making and seeing and sharing of ideas 
So you found the sculpture absolutely inspiring. I wanted to be a sculptor while I was there, (laughs) and I couldn't be because Cammy was being a sculptor. But she, I'm sure, wanted to be the painter. She's going, oh, love, that's so good. And I'm going, I can't believe you've made this. This is so beautiful. I mean, she was dragging whale bones up off the beach and building these beautiful brand esque sculptures and which she's then gone on to exhibit and we've she's done very well we both did very well Mm. with the work that we've made there and then I went back again with my dear friend Susan Baird it's a very sort of wild landscape isn't it and ancient yes Um, it's very remote as well quite quite yes Bruni Island, you have to catch a ferry across and once again we had to take all our food and the first thing you do is you go to the bottle shop and you get your case of wine and then you go to the supermarket and you get your, you know, uh, steak and your, uh, <laughs> and your fruit and veggies and your Dijon mustard. I mean, you've got to think of everything. Yeah. And um, and then you land and you... Um, but also you've got to think about, okay, what am I going to take? What art supplies? And you don't want to be going down there dragging everything but the kitchen sink. You don't... The whole idea is you don't take everything in your studio. You take a roll of paper, you take some gouaches, some watercolours, you know, you try and pare it down. Mm. If you took your oil paints and all your mediums, you may as well stay home. Yeah. The point is you want to be able to go out into the landscape and just start making and not be too precious. Mm. That's the beauty of the residency. Mm. Um, And as I was saying before when we were talking about those Bruni Island Mm, pieces in my show... I wanted to raise that, actually. There's two works... I think it's Bruni 1 and Bruni 2, is that yes, right? Yes, and I made them in the bush. Yes, you made Bruni. them in plein air, mm. on plein air. And I actually, uh, I actually thought, oh, this is, this is just play, you know, um, and I'll, 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 they'll probably end up on the bonfire. But when I got, got them home, actually I didn't open the package for eight months, the work that I made in Bruni Island, and when I opened up the package... I was so pleasantly surprised and I almost didn't see, I almost couldn't remember making the work because I was so kind of um, transported by the landscape and I was so kind of deeply engrossed that I, and involved that I couldn't actually, it wasn't, it was sort of like a meditation and I think that's what happens at the residencies because it's kind of like you've got this time where you can just be free to explore and so you're not um you know you don't, you're not working to a deadline and you can't always put your hand on the the paintbrush or the tool that you need and so you might just use a stick or <laughs> do you know or or the side of your hand or yeah. I know it sounds like a cliche but there's something really in that and mm. there's a there's a precariousness to the making. Um, well, those but, works were quite abstract in a way, weren't they? Yes, and I think that's because it is so emotional and immediate that you're just painting what you see. And, you know, when you're really looking deep in the bush and looking, it is very abstract. Mm. You know, where's the horizon line? Well, that's gone. Um, and there's these big shadows and um, big shapes and... You were saying that the colours that you used for those paintings weren't the, your usual no, colours. No, well, I took some gouaches down and they seemed to be a lot of lemon yellow 
in the landscape and just so happened that I'd chucked a lemon yellow in and I never used that and and then I mixed that with it an interesting green that I had and and then you get this sort of muddy thing going on because you introduce some uh, uh, some earth palette there's a lot of that earth palette in that scratchy landscape mm. down there when you're going into your studio and making work that you know when I was talking about my process became a little formulaic the essence of what I was painting was lost. Mm. And so now being with King Street Gallery and going out into the landscape, quite often with these other painters who are just as at sea, they talk about being at sea and not, not, really, not really knowing. Elizabeth talks about that. Elizabeth Cummings. Um, yes. Mm. Um, and do you think you need to have that going on? Yes, I do. I think there's something in not being sure while you're making the work and it it brings a an energy and an excitement and sometimes you almost lose the work it it falls apart but in that falling apart you can sometimes bring it back and it's like all the planets line up and you've made something yeah, so you were you were mentioning earlier that now you've moved away from you've moved to um, America. Yes. To yeah. Maine, uh, yes. in fact, yes. more um, specifically, Desert Island. Yeah, Mount Desert. Island. Oh, Mount Desert yes. Island. That's right. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, I married this beautiful man. My world has been opened up since I met Martin, and actually, how we met. This is a really beautiful story it's a modern fairy tale of sorts um is that he collected me for for many years collected my work and um he was living in los angeles in the hollywood hills and he's a scientist a stem cell biologist and he was coming to australia to speak to a conference and he looked me up through my website and he to propose that he come and visit yeah. not that he was stalking me at all <laughs> no, he promised me he wasn't and it was actually a really lovely thing to do is to meet people who have collected you over yeah. a long period of time and that must be just so to revisit um, yes quite and because as artists you know often we have exhibitions and our work disappears into obscurity yeah. and you don't see the work again and you know you can actually forget uh, whole bodies of work, you know, you can forget. And so Martin and I courted over two years and there was lots of toing and froing over over the Pacific. And Mm. um, when I first went to visit him, I walked in and there were all my paintings from, you know, 12 years. And the great thing is that I didn't own any of my work so when we married when we got together the quintessential paintings from those melbourne exhibitions that i'd had over the last 20 years all came back to me so it was like beauty (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was it was a really cathartic experience to see that work again and actually some of those paintings i actually had forgotten that i'd made and i actually went in in approaching them, I thought, I can't 
I can't understand how I even made these. Yeah. Do you know? So that's how far we can develop and yeah. change and shift in our process. How do you feel looking mm. back on those old ones? Um, sometimes I feel quite sentimental and other times I feel like I want to get up in the middle of the night with my paintbox <laughs> and make a few changes <laughs> and he says don't you dare I pay good money for those no I, I realize it's part of my journey and that those paintings are important I yeah. mean I do worry about all those dreadful paintings I made that Kim Benithan sold that are out there in the world and there's nothing I can do about them and that's why it's important that I'm truly honest um, in my art practice now because I've got to make up for all those really bad paintings that I made. But I suppose uh, the thing is that every artist has got those do. really bad paintings they at the do. beginning. But you know? I would have rather not put those out into the world. But I yeah. suppose it's like writers feel like that about their first and second and third novel. Yeah. It's published, it's out there, you've got to let go. That's you know. right, and that's who you were, and that's what stage exactly. you were at at that point. You exactly. know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and when we look at, say, a Richard Diebenkorn book, and we see those early paintings, we don't go, "Oh, that's really bad." No, that's we, right. We think, "Oh, wow, that's really interesting where where he came from and and how the work has evolved." And I see a little bit of that language that that he he's using now back in those very early works so yeah, yeah it is just a very self-conscious well that's right now. i think everybody's harsh on themselves yes, you know they are it's just a, a a really nice launching pad now to now go back to maine and and make some paintings about that landscape there which to be honest has really um i've, I've found it very um transporting to be honest yeah. well it's, um, it's snowy isn't it's it snow- so yeah. when we arrived the day we moved in it was minus 17 degrees <laughs> <laughs> and a blizzard and, uh, and 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 when I woke up in the morning there was a snow plow in our garden <laughs> plowing the driveway so we could get the car out of the driveway I'm like, okay but the landscape so there's lots of drawing suddenly there's drawing in the landscape because there's all these birches coming up through the snow so you've got this positive and negative thing going on yeah you've got the, because all the extraneous detail is it's all cold, white all, all it's taken all snow. out it's so right for me it's a kind of a lovely veiling and it's very gentle and very tender mm-hmm. and so firstly I st- it was too cold to go outside so I just started making paintings from the windows mm. of the of the house and um, and then once the snow started to melt I go out there w- with my paint and that was interesting because there's a lot of color in the landscape once the snow started to melt and you just get pockets of white and then the 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 color coming up and you did a, a, a big public commission for World Square in 2005. Is that right? Yeah, it was a That huge... was the last commission I ever did. Oh, was Full it? Full stop, end of story. Why? Yeah. Oh, I just find it just is not conducive to creative freedom and it all inevitably ends in tears. That one didn't. <laughs> but I just think it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just the worst possible thing you could do um, for... 
uh, feeling relaxed in your studio, no. It's, it's just uh, because you've constantly got the, the, the architect here on one shoulder, yeah. your harsh critic on the other, <laughs> and um, the um, interior designer sort of hovering over here and the, uh, the art consultant hovering over here and oh no and it's just also so they send people. you the colour swats is in the in the post and um oh. they send like a team of of people up to to review the work in progress look it was it was look i felt i felt a lot of gratitude for being offered that big commission or winning it or whatever but i um but it was stressful i had to build a wall a big wall and set up a scaffold in my studio and i built it in one two three three, eight panels um and look that was a long time ago now and I, i i would possibly do it differently um but now but um i just got to a point in my career where i thought you know what I, I'm just going to say I don't do commissions anymore because mm-hmm. number one, I, I don't need to, and and number two, it's not a pleasurable experience. No, it's funny. It's, a lot of artists I've spoken to felt felt the same mm, way. Mm. It sort of ta- well, it takes freedom away from you. Doesn't exactly, it? and that's the one thing we're really struggling to uh, achieve. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. That I think that's right. Feeling well, freedom in the process. Yeah, yeah. well, talking about freedom. Um, I just wanted to talk to you a bit about your process and your techniques. We were talking earlier when I was talking to you at the gallery, we were looking at your beautiful work, about how you uh, achieve that, that lovely application of paint. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I actually use a lot of wax in my process oh, and, and um, lots and lots of layering and drawing and taking away and then putting back on and like if you saw my studio floor <laughs> there's more paint on the floor than <laughs> on the canvas <laughs> um, but so it's about actually I actually kind of press the paint into the surface just keep on pressing so it's so kind of oh. like a, a maturation of the surface so it's almost like I want the paint to be sort of embedded and, and I think using that wax is very helpful for that and it sort of creates a, a pastiness that I really like and a and a, a, a translucency but an opacity at the same time. Mm. Um, what so is, what it's taken it a actually? long time to formulate that too. Right. Um, is it, it's a wax medium, is it? Yes, yeah. so I use a, a language uh, wax medium that's been bleached um, and uh, I use all different types of oil paints but I just generally just mix the paint the oil paint in with the wax mm. and and apply it with a brush and then do a lot of scraping with with concrete trowels and and palette knives and but I also use a lot of liquid and I use that in conjunction uh, with with the wax medium sometimes and and then I do sort of like a veiling on the work and then so it's then like I, a glazing yes but it i actually then scrape back with this big concrete trowel big scraper and it sort of pushes the paint across across the picture plane mm. it's sort of like um a pressing a pressing of the paint mm. and then quite often with 
what I've got on the on the trowel, there's a lot of paint on the trowel, I'll then go up to the top of the picture and drag that paint back down it. So in that way I can kind of achieve a harmony or a harmonious colour field because I'm dragging the paint from the bottom up to the top and likewise from the top taking the paint off the top and bringing it from and then two days later I'll revisit the work and then two days later so some work I I could work on it for every second day for two months but I've always got maybe 10 works I'm working on at once Oh. And sometimes I banish things to the wall. Sometimes I take the work totally out of the building, and like put it in another space so I don't want to see it because I know it's got legs, but but I it's bamboozling me. It's 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 I don't know where to go next, and but I I know it's got potential, and so if I if I take it out of the room and then a week and a half later bring it back in. I mean, I'm sure all artists have these psychological tricks mm. uh, that they adopt to, to help help them along in their process. Yeah. There's things that we do, you know. Like I never walk into my studio and pick up a paintbrush and start working in the morning. I always do laps, you know. I, I banished the computer years ago laps if, what do you mean laps i of... do laps of the studio you know i i walk a lot around and put a record on usually an anthem of some sort bobby dylan song yeah. or just one song just to get the juices going the feelings flowing yeah but i generally work in silence um very rarely work to music at the end of painting a show, I will, you know, put some tunes on and paint around the edges of my paintings. That's when I listen to music, when I'm happy with what I've done. <laughs> oh, you've been the sides. Yeah, I paint around my edges of oh, the canvases. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. Um, um, <laughs> but no, very rarely. I, I have to be very still in my mind. So silence. Um, silence, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Do you find that when, but when you're in that state, I mean, it isn't. You're portraying a dreamlike state on your canvases. Yeah. Is it? Is that the sort of state you're in when you're painting? Yes, and I don't want any distraction. I don't want any my emotions to be being pulled in another direction mm. from how I'm feeling about, you know, my place in the world. Or it, it's kind of like you have to be really still to let the feelings and the thoughts about what you're doing flow. I don't know, it's it's hard to articulate. Mm. And also you've used, uh, you've done some really long, beautiful paintings on paper. Um, and I'm thinking in particular um, that work that got into the Salon de Refuse last year called um, Gundagai Bridge. So that was, uh, came out of a series of paintings I made about the Murrumbidgee and the river and those old uh, wooden trust bridges that span the Murrumbidgee and they're almost a kilometre long. They're amazing. Uh, amazing structures. And I thought, I've got to bloody paint these. these are stunning. <laughs> and I've always enjoyed the structure, man-made structure, evidence of man in the landscape, not actually figures in the landscape, but fence lines, bridges, mm. telegraph poles just 
adding a geometry or a certain structure to the organic nature of the landscape. Mm. So I use a big roll of Fabriano. It's not fabulous paper. It's not like, you know, I think it's only 260 GSM or maybe 300 GSM, but it's not, you know, it's not really expensive or anything. It's just like a normal paper and you can get it in the... What I like about it is you can get it in the 10 metre roll. But yeah. a, a lot of the time I just put a big piece of paper up on the wall and I just um, find it really liberating to work on paper because if it doesn't work, um, you can either cut it up and recompose the image. I often cut up my works on paper sometimes three or four times and then I, I've got a big table in my studio that I ha actually invert the work and I have to patch where I have to patch it together with more paper and and uh, archival glue and, and and then I turn it back and staple it back on the wall and off I go again. So it sort of brings a complexity and abstract quality to the work. So it shifts your thinking and then I go back into it again and sort of it's a nice way of working. Yeah, and it's not you can you can't sort of... do that with linen on a stretch no, well, canvas. No. <laughs> Mind you, I d those dip ditches that I made for Anna Pappas show, um, they were like, I don't know, 4.2 metres long and each. But what I did was I worked in dip ditch. So I put two pennies together and then sometimes I'd, I'd invert one. Artists do this all the time, yeah. I'm sure, um, and start working on it with one end inverted or. And, and you can. Oh, so as you're going, you mean, so you've sort of gone halfway it. along and then yeah. you think, I'm going to just turn, turn this around this and keep around. working. Yeah, yeah. and so the end of the picture becomes the big, the middle of the picture. Yeah. The bit, once you put the dip ditch together. And I like edges and I like what edges do when they come together. So that long work of um, the Lake George that I've got in my show, I mm. did a similar thing where I cut the bottom off and inverted it and then suddenly you've got this lovely seam in the middle yes. which is a nice kind of resting point for the eye and a nice arbitrary shape imposed on the work that sort of sits you up as a viewer, oh what's that, oh okay, could be a telegraph pole or could be, you know, it's just that's how we see the landscape. Mm. We're, so you're uh, not, you don't think, oh... I've got to, to make this that. look seamless no, now. No, no. Once upon a time, yeah, but not anymore. <laughs> no, I think that's what gives... It's a sort of... It's an interesting kind of shape in the work that doesn't quite fit, but not everything fits in the landscape when you look at it. So it's sort of an accident that... It's a happy one, yeah. 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 No, it is, it's an accident on purpose mm. kind of thing. Sounds contrived, doesn't it? But it kind of works for me. Mm. There's no rules, by the way, mm. and that's what I've learned. I grew up as a painter in my early days feeling like there was all these rules and I think the more I unlearn, the more I learn. Going to King Street, I felt quite liberated to unlearn. Just be unsure, make mistakes, make a mess. Not be so precious. Yeah. Because it's often those works that work the best. And also having some distance. Quite often I'd make work over a couple of days and then just destroy it. And I just 
trusting more in my mark making and just allowing the work to exist on its own without imposing judgment on it. Mm. I mean, I think I'm at a point in my creative development where I can where I can do that. Yeah. I, I, I can actually let the work have its own life and, and actually see that it actually has something in it. Mm. Um, not go in and try and impose too much on it. So I'm at that point, actually. Mm. So, so in other words, you're still... Do you find that you're still taking risks, though? Absolutely. So yeah. you don't... It's so... a risk not going back in and fixing it up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, before... Uh, a week before I went to live in America, uh, early March, when I had my show in the bag and it was all wrapped ready to go um i went out into the garden at essington and i spent four days making work just in the garden on plain air and i put it all in a folder and just a couple of days ago i revisited it i just took it all out and lay it out on my studio floor and you know there's there's some works in there that are really singing Mm -hmm. and like it didn't mean anything to me at the time. I was just sort of connecting in, saying goodbye to the place, you know, and not not being too worried about what I was making. And then, you know, to come home, it's a gift to discover things that you weren't too kind of precious about. Yeah. And just open it all up and, wow, that was a place and a time and that's what I was feeling back then. And, wow, this is... This is really nice. Some of it's not good. Some of it I might take back out there and scratch back into. But there's some things in there that, and it, and it it does talk about your personal narrative, your story, mm. where you were then, and so and it's interesting that you need that distance to be able to see that. Absolutely. So that's what I've learned to. As I was saying before, distance is really important. Don't rush to be too judgmental. Mm. Yeah. And also, I also find in painting, sometimes there's a bit, a third of the painting's like brilliant, <laughs> and two thirds of it is really bad. <laughs> so, what to do? Dilemma. Um, it's a really tricky business to try and bring, well, this is what we do as painters, try and bring the rest of the um, work up to that level but it's making that recognizing that there's a little bit in there that is quite quite special mm. but also at the same time not holding on to what we say uh, holding on to our heroes at the expense of the rest of the work so it's yeah. that balance as well yeah it's, it's so a, sometimes you have to, to let go of that bit yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> kills me <didn't> it? <laughs> living and learning huh yeah exactly living and learning Well, Joanna, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you, particularly with your show coming up this week. Um, Good luck with it. It looks fantastic. Um, Thank you, Maria. It's been a total pleasure talking with you and thinking through these deep thought ideas. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Joanna. If you go to the website, you'll find a link to Joanna's website as well as links to things and people we talked about on the show i'll also get a short youtube clip up in the next week where joanna talks to me in the lead up to her show 
Just search Talking with Painters on YouTube and you should see the podcast playlist come up. I also posted a short clip on Instagram and Facebook a few days ago of the opening night of that show. So that's worth checking out as well. Thanks again for all your messages on Instagram and Facebook where you can follow the show as well as on Twitter. And thanks for the reviews on iTunes that really helps get the show out into the world. So thanks for listening and look forward to you joining me again for the next episode of Talking With Painters. I'll be pushing through to this idea that I've always been interested in is arriving at a universal landscape. Really working hard at a, at a specific very kind of um, personal and, and specific landscape, I think what you can essentially arrive at is a universal landscape, something that could touch anybody. Thank you.